Our second scripture reading today comes to us from the book of Haggai. You can find that in your Pew Bibles on page 1468. 1468. We're going to read Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Thus ends our reading of God's unchanging word. May all who hear it experience the presence of their Lord. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it take to be in God's kingdom? It takes a repentant heart and faith in Jesus, both in who he is, which is God in human flesh, and in what he has done, which was dying on the cross, paying the penalty for our sins, and then rising again on the third day. But to what end did, did Jesus do this for us? Why go through such suffering? Do you ever think about that? It's because he desires to be in a right relationship with his people. This has been the goal since the very beginning. For the dwelling of God to be with men. That he would live with them. That they would be his people and God himself would be with them and be their God. Over the next month and a half, we will be taking a short break from the Gospel of Matthew. And as we are starting this new series on the book of Haggai. And the reason we are doing this is because, simply, Matthew is a long book. And while it's a great book, I don't, know, I don't want us to spend two and a half years without ever digging into the Old Testament. So in, in one sense, this, this new series is a reminder to us that, that God has been working to redeem his people throughout history, and not just in the first century A.D., Ever since the garden, when, when man fell, God has been tirelessly at work unfolding his plan of salvation, how he can restore us into that right relationship. So why the book of Haggai? Well, for one, it's, it's a short book, which will allow us to not miss a beat when we come back to the book of Matthew. But also because it is, it is a book that is often overlooked as, as it is one of those minor prophets. There, there is this whole section in, in God's word between the books of Daniel and the book of Matthew that, that tends to get ignored. But it is God's word nonetheless. And it is in there for a reason. You see, this, this book of, of Haggai it has a message that is relevant to us today. So what is Haggai about? It is a book about repentance. 
It is a book about God's glory. It's a book about unity. It's a book about God's kingdom. But most importantly, it is a book about restoration. How does an exiled people, a people who have now returned to the land, how do they rebuild their lives, and how do they put God at the center of all of it? This is the main question that we will be looking at as we grapple with Haggai's story. And it is a question that for all of us, we should be able to relate to. You see, going from an unbeliever to a Christian also entails learning how to put God at the center of our lives. This is a challenge that, that, that all Christians face, as it requires humility and sacrifice and often tribulation. And yet, learning how to do this will bring about such joy and, and blessing as well. This is what we'll see in this tiny, tiny book. But before we go into the text, I want to give you an outline so that you will know where we are heading over the next six weeks. Haggai was a prophet, and as a prophet, he was someone who spoke the word of God. And this is how the book of Haggai is broken down. We see six times that the, that the word of the Lord came to Haggai. First, in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, there God spoke through Haggai to both the governor and the high priest a word concerning the sin of the people. Next, in verses 3 through 11, God spoke another word, uh, calling for his people to repent. Then, in verses 12 through 15, we see that the people do repent, and so God tells them that his presence has returned. That brings us to chapter 2, where in verses 1 through 9, God gave to his people a word of encouragement through the promise of future glory. And then in verses 10 through 19, God provided another word to strengthen his people, a word of his promised blessings, even though they were a defiled people and undeserving. And finally, in verses 20 through 23, we, we see this story culminate in one last word, a promise, uh, a promise that his kingdom, this kingdom of God, would come forth from his temple and take dominion over all of the earth. With that being said, let's go to the text and look at this first word concerning the, the sin of the people. Let's begin our journey of finding out what it means to build God's house. Look at Haggai 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Just like any prophet worth his salt, Haggai lets us know the exact setting of the, of the situation um, of God's people when the word of the Lord came to his people. It was the year 520 B.C., or the first day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. Now, this may not have any meaning to you, but it meant a lot to the people of God at that time. 
For for it encapsulates a, a whole period in Judah's history which speaks to their idolatry, God's discipline by sending them into exile, and God's gracious mercy in allowing them to return to the land. It was roughly 70 years prior that this people of God had, had turned their backs on Yahweh by worshiping other gods. These detestable things were shown to the prophet Ezekiel in a vision. God took him to his temple and had him look to the north. And there at the, at the gate of the altar, he, he saw the idol of jealousy. Then God, God brought him to the court entrance where he saw 70 elders offering incense to crawling things and unclean animals. And these men, they, they said to themselves, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And then God brought Ezekiel to the north gate where he saw women mourning for Tammuz, the, the, the fertility god of the Babylonians. And finally, one last vision in the temple of God. We read this in Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 16. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance of the temple, between the portico and the altar, were about 25 men. With their backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. He said to me, Have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the house of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually provoke me to anger? Look at them, putting the branch to their nose. Therefore, I will deal with them in anger. I will not look on them with pity or spare them, although they shout in my ears, I will not listen. This was the state of Judah. They were an idolatrous bunch, thinking that Yahweh was nowhere, nowhere to be found. They worshipped these false gods in the midst of his house. And it's not as if God hadn't given them any warnings. He had sent to them his prophets, but they were not heeded. And twice he, he sent the Babylonians who had laid siege on Jerusalem. God was trying to wake his people up in the hopes that they would repent. He even allowed many of his own people to be taken captive. People such as Daniel and, and this Ezekiel, hoping that, that that would bring them to their senses. But instead, they only hardened their hearts even more. The final straw had been reached. And so God gave to his prophet one more vision of his temple. Only this time, it would be of the glory of the Lord leaving. Look at Ezekiel 10, verse Verses 18 and 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel was above them. Not only had the people of God left, people left their God, 
But now God had left his people. He had departed from his temple. And that allowed the Babylonians to ransack the city, destroy the temple, and slaughter many. For those who were left, those taken captive to Babylon, and those who had fled to Egypt, news of the temple's destruction had to have torn their hearts in two. They would have been asking themselves this question. If the temple is gone, then where is our God? Is he even with us anymore? Jump forward 50 years and a, and a great king, Cyrus of Persia, had risen to power. He had defeated the Babylonians. And in an effort to gain the support of the people, he instituted a law saying that all captives could return to their homelands and begin to rebuild. This is what we read in our first scripture reading in Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to make a proclamation through his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and to build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Well, eventually, roughly 50,000 Jews made their way back to the land of Judah. And they began to rebuild. They constructed homes and made lives for themselves in the land that their ancestors had once possessed. And they, and they even attempted to rebuild the temple. But unfortunately, they found resistance from the neighboring people and the construction ceased. The people neglected the work and a pile of rubble continued to sit on the temple mount for another 18 years. Well, Cyrus was now dead, and, and Darius, Cyrus's grandson, was, was in his second year as king of Persia. And these were hard times, times of unrest, because the Egyptians were causing the Persians trouble. Darius, he needed more troops. And in an effort to support these troops, a new tax was imposed on the people. But as bad as things were, they were worse than the land of Judah. For they had, had been experiencing a drought, causing them economic woes. But always in the, in the back of the people's minds was that edict of Cyrus and the reconstruction of the temple of Yahweh. But unfortunately, the timing never seemed to be right. Which brings us back to our verse. It was on the first day of the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. It was a day when the people of God should have been offering a new moon sacrifice, but instead the top of that temple mount laid barren. 
It was just a pile of rubble covered in dust. And yet the word of the Lord came to Haggai, and he spoke to both Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Who were these men? And why does Haggai speak to them? Zerubbabel was a grandson of Jehoiachin, the last true king of Israel. He, he represented that Davidic line. And he would have been heir to the throne if his people had ever gained their independence once again. For the time being, Darius, that, that Persian king, had placed this Zerubbabel as the governor over that region as a means to gain favor with the people. Joshua, on the other hand, was the ancestor of Zadok, who was the high priest during the time of King Solomon. Zadok was the one who oversaw the, re the construction of the first temple. And of course, there's Haggai, the prophet of the Lord, whose name means feast. This is an appropriate name since he always seems to prophesy on the appointed days of the Jewish feasts. What we see going on here are the three anointed offices of the people of Israel. We have the prophet, Haggai. We have the priest, Joshua. And the king, Zerubbabel. Haggai was given the word of the Lord. And he gave it to these other two as a way of unifying his people and legitimizing this command from God to rebuild his temple. What you have to understand is that often in Judah's history, we see that at least one of these offices ends up becoming corrupt. And we talked about that word corruption this morning in Bible study. Um, but you see corruption throughout Judah's history either in the office of prophet, priest, or king. And when that happens, the people are often led astray. God desired a heart of repentance. And that heart of repentance begins with his anointed. They must present a unified front in order to lead this people who have for too long put off this project. But because the hearts of the people, because they were so obstinate, God desired for them to see that all of the leadership, all of his anointed, were behind what the Lord was commanding. Such a strategy shouldn't be necessary. I mean, God's word should be enough, shouldn't it? But as we've seen in the past, if just one of these offices ignores God's word, then the people are often led astray. Unfortunately, we, we see the same danger happening in the church as well. If, if there's not unity among the, the leadership, if someone in a position of influence ignores God's word, then it becomes like a, a yeast spreading through the dough, and the people end up being led astray. Jesus even cautioned his disciples of such a thing happening. He warned of wolves creeping in and devouring the flock. Matthew 7, verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they are ferocious wolves. 
And yet, as dangerous as wolves are, we have someone greater. Today, we have an anchor that we can look to. We have a man that that fulfills all three roles of prophet, priest, and king. And there is no corruption upon his lips, no deceit that will lead us astray. We can be certain that the words he speaks are the words of the Lord, for he himself is God incarnate. He is Christ our Lord. But for the people of Haggai's time, they could only look forward to that day when the word would become flesh and dwell among them. For now, they had these three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And because God was determined to lead his people, he brought his word to the king and to the priest through this prophet named Haggai. He was going to unify them in order to unify his people. But what was that word? Look at verse 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. These people? Not my people, but, but, but these people. God knew that the people lacked faith in Him. They had not built the temple, even though it had been 18 years since that edict of Cyrus. Yes, there were trials along the way. Yes, they they faced opposition from their neighbors who surrounded them. But that was not an excuse, for they allowed the dread of men to overrule their love for God. They were a people living in fear and not in faith. This is why they said to to one another, The time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. How often do we, as God's people, walk in fear and not in faith? God may be calling us to to follow Him in an area that will be difficult, an area that will be trying. And though we know it is God's Word, we lack the courage to be obedient. And so instead, we end up worrying about what our neighbors might think. We fear that we might offend someone. And so we rationalize our our timidity by employing human wisdom. We come up with excuses to avoid doing what is right. We say things like, now's not the time. Or, we can deal with this down the road. And it seems like good advice, but in the end, it only puts off the inevitable and demonstrates a lack of trust in God. You see, we are not willing to let Him provide a solution. This is exactly what, the, what these Jews had done for 18 years. They, they, they just kicked the can down the road, ignoring the fact that they were the people of God in name only. Yahweh was not with them. And that's the real issue, isn't it? They had an absent God because they had never built his house. The temple was designed first and foremost to be God's dwelling among his people. 
The people of that time, those those 50,000 that had returned to the land, they may have been Jews by, by birth, but they were Gentiles in spirit. And why? Because God was not at the center of their lives. He was not a priority. Over the next few weeks, we will be seeing many reasons why the temple was so important. But the underlying issue was that they were a people without a God because he wasn't central to their lives. They embodied the very thing that God had been trying to fix since the fall. Dear friends, God desires to live with his people. He did back then, and he still does today. For them, God's dwelling came through the temple. For you, it is through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. And what this really comes down to is a question of desire. Do you desire to be in the presence of your God? Is he your top priority? Do you have faith in him to bring you through those tough times? Or will you say, the time has not yet come? There are no excuses. This is why he created you to begin with. So that you might be his people. And that God himself would be with you and be your God. It's time to let go of human wisdom and it's time to trust in your Creator. Let us pray. Father, too often we are, are like these exiles. We, we know what your Word says, and yet we are afraid to obey. We lack a trust in you. We don't value your presence like we should. Help us to repent. May your dwelling be in us through your Holy Spirit. And may we look to our true prophet, our, our true priest, and our true king, who is your son, Jesus, the one who died for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.